Amen. You may be seated. Back in Luke's Gospel today, if you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 3, or the text is printed there on page 10, and across the page you'll notice a kind of breakdown of part of the text in a bit more graphic fashion, beginning in verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Ezli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Semain, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Joanan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kozam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathet, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxaz, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalaleel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enoz, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray for the moving of your spirit now, Lord, as we hear this in Jesus' good name. Amen. I'm discovering as you get older that it clarifies your priorities. You start to realize you don't have unlimited time, so you've got to be a little more focused. And I've come to realize as I'm growing older in the ministry, I'm getting some focus, and I've realized that one of the pretty basic things I'm just after, I want to use, in whatever time God continues to give me, and I know you want this too, but I want to use every tool and sometimes every weapon in my pastoral arsenal to go after this one specific goal in particular, and that is to get your focus off you onto what you are a part of. I want to get your focus off you onto what you're a part of. And me too. And that's no slight to you or to me, because you're a part of this thing that we're a part of. 
But what will happen as you and I get our focus off of ourselves onto what we are a part of is what is going to shift is what matters most. Because in what we are a part of, beloved, in what you are a part of, what I'm a part of, you don't matter the most. You matter a lot. You don't matter the most. And that's going to affect the way that you interact with the story of Jesus in this gospel. Because if your life is really about you, then Jesus really matters only insofar as he improves your life. And there are honestly a lot of professing Christians for whom this is pretty much true. They, they, they're focused on themselves. And so the reality is Jesus matters pretty much to the extent that he improves their life. And we've talked about the, the whole hell insurance thing. You know, Jesus gives me hell insurance. And we all would like a lot more benefits than just hell insurance from Jesus. But that's about how much Jesus matters if your life's about you. But in this thing that you and I are a part of, Jesus matters so much more than that. Because Jesus is the central figure in this thing that we're a part of. He is, you guys like plays, you like Broadway? Jesus is the playwright of this play. If, the, if, if history is a drama, Jesus, he is the, he is the playwriter. <laughs> and he is the main protagonist. He is the central figure. And so if we're in this thing, in this drama, if we're a part of this, we really need to learn who Jesus is. We need to know who this, who this person is, and we need to orient our lives, which do matter, we need to orient our lives to what he is doing. Now, with that in mind, you can see that the first three and a half chapters of Luke's gospel are really just setting Jesus in the context of what you and I are a part of. I've sometimes called it the macro story. Jesus is in the macro story, and you're in the macro story. We're all part of this macro story, but the, Luke is setting Jesus in the context of this big thing that God is writing, God is doing, and he's really showing us in these early chapters how all the storylines in that macro story converge in Jesus. That, by the way, is why the opening part of the text that I just read to you is not just a boring string of irrelevant names. I mean, I'm like you. I get to a bunch of Hebrew names in, a, in the Bible that go on for pages, and I glaze over but what Luke is doing here is not just a boring string of irrelevant names, because what Jesus' genealogy, and following that, his temptation, what they're showing us is who Jesus is in light of the whole story up to this point. They're showing us who Jesus is in light of the whole macro story up to this point. And what I would like to show you today, just briefly, is that these, this text shows us Jesus' two things. First of all, he's our representative. Let's look at his genealogy and just think for a moment about the fact that he's our representative. Because you guys ever been on like Ancestry.com? You ever poked around in your genealogy? Some of you know your family stories better than others. But the purpose of a genealogy, you know, Andrew, the son of Ben, the son of Gary, the son of Wally, the son of Joseph, and so on. The purpose of a genealogy is to show who's this person a part of? Who is this individual, Ben Miller, who is he a part of? Who are this person's people? What line, what story is this particular individual standing in? That is the purpose of the biblical genealogies. That's the purpose of genealogies today. It's good to know who we're a part of, what storyline we are standing in. And in Jesus' case, you'll notice, there is a, there's a further layer here. And here it would be helpful to look at that diagram on page 11 in your bulletin because Luke breaks his genealogy down. There's 77 
there's 11 sevens, 11 groups of seven here. And you'll, you'll notice there, there's kind of something deeper with Jesus' genealogy. It, it shows us not just the people he came from. It shows us not just the people from whom, from whom Jesus has come. It also is showing us the people for whom Jesus is about to act. Let me just quickly say that again. This isn't just showing us the people from whom Jesus came. It is showing us that, but it's also showing us the people for whom he is about to act. And we can relate to this, I think, even on the individual level, because if you think about your family line, have you, has your parent, did your parents ever say to you, your grandparents ever say to you, you know, if you keep doing that, you're going to shame the family or something like that. Or, you're, you know, you'll be the first of our line to do X, maybe more positively. And the point there is that some, as you find yourself in this line of the people you're a part of, what you do does reflect on the family, does reflect on the line. You know, you can bring shame or honor because you, in a way, in your generation, represent these people. You're not just born into this story. You affect the story by what, who you are and what you do. But it's even a bigger deal how you act if you hold an office that represents a whole people, if, if you have an office given to you and you're going to represent an entire nation or entire tribe or an entire group of people, an entire body of, of, of people, it is really important that we know that you're one of them. You're not an alien. You're not a stranger. You're not a foreigner. This is why in our Constitution, our president must be a natural-born citizen. And not only a natural-born citizen, but must have lived and been a resident in these United States for at least 14 years. Why? Because it's very important. If you're going to have an office representing the entirety of the United States of America, you need to be, in certain ways that the Constitution identifies, one of these people. And so Jesus is about to take office. He really has taken office at his baptism. And he's going to act for all of these people in that office. And so let's just look briefly at his genealogy, and you can see there's some, some interesting things here. Luke's genealogy is quite unusual in that it works backwards. Most biblical genealogies go father, son, father, son, and so on. Luke works backward up the line. Like Matthew, he traces the line of Jesus' family starting with Joseph. Now, you will sometimes hear people say there are contradictions between Luke's genealogy and Matthew's genealogy, and Christians will try to say, oh, that's because Matthew is giving us Joseph's genealogy, and Luke is giving us Mary's genealogy. That is false, so don't repeat that. They both give Joseph's genealogy, but what, Joseph, what Luke does, unlike Matthew, is he traces Joseph's line not through Joseph's direct connection to David's line, through the, the kingdom succession. So there's a certain line from Joseph that kind of weaves back through the line of the kings back to King David through Solomon, and Matthew traces that line. Luke does something a little bit different, and this is very interesting. He traces a biological line of Joseph's family that was at certain points surprisingly grafted into the kingly line through adoption. And I, if you want to know more about that, I'll send you some stuff. Email me. But like this guy, Shealtiel, uh, you'll notice on the very left-hand column at the very bottom is this dude named Shealtiel. He is actually, at the time of the exile, grafted into the line of Davidic kings through adoption. Now, why is that important? Because one of Luke's big emphases in his gospel is that God is constantly taking very unlikely people <laughs> and bringing them in bringing them into the story of what God is doing, bringing them into God's grace. So there's, that's what's going on here with this genealogy, among other things. 
And you'll notice as you kind of look through the names that although we are getting back to David through a line other than Solomon, Solomon's lineage, that's Matthew's genealogy, we eventually do come through Nathan, David's son Nathan, to David, you'll notice. And that's important because Jesus is going to act for David's line. This is showing that he is David's son. He is David's rightful heir. And then we continue on up through the line and we eventually make our way through the story of Israel back to, you see, Abraham. And this is showing us that Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He's part of the Abraham family. He can act in his office for them. And then there's a jolt. This is not something we see in Matthew's genealogy. We go through three more sevens and we come all the way back to Adam, who, we are told, was the son of God. And in ancient Near Eastern understandings of sonship language, this is reminding us that Adam was created to be God's royal son, to be his royal image bearer, to be his vice regent ruling the world in the name of his father, And so what Luke is telling us here is that Jesus is here on the earth in the flesh to fulfill God's purposes, not just for Abraham's family or David's line in particular. He's here to fulfill God's purposes for the entire human race. Everything God made humans to be, Jesus will be that. He is the representative, not just of Israel through Abraham and David, He's a representative of God's humanity as a whole because you'll remember God told Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed, right? I love the way N.T. Wright expresses this in his book, The New Testament and the People of God. He says, Luke told the story of Jesus as a Jewish story, indeed as the Jewish story, but he told it in such a way as to say to his non-Jewish Greco-Roman audience, here in the life of this one man, is the Jewish message of salvation that you pagans need. Amen? Here in this one man is the Jewish message of salvation that you pagans need. It's for you too, Theophilus, (laughs) a Gentile. Trinity Church, you know, here we are. Most of us, I assume, Gentiles. So Jesus is our representative. That's what the genealogy shows us. But then we go on to discover that he's not only, I said there's two things. He's not just our representative. He is our champion. That's the second thing we see beginning in chapter 4. He's our champion because the text moves on immediately. And in keeping with the breadth of those that Jesus has come to save. So we've just kind of been shocked a little bit. It's not just Abraham's family, not just David's line. It's all of Adam's race. It's God's humanity as a whole. That's who Jesus came to save, Adam's family. And in keeping with that scope of what Jesus has come to do, we are introduced immediately now to the real enemy that he is here to face and to save us from. And it's very interesting to notice that this initial enemy contact, it's not with godless human powers, whether those are over Israel. You know, you might think, well, why not pay a visit to Tiberius Caesar? Or Pontius Pilate, for example, shake things up in the Roman Empire a little bit. That's not what Jesus thought his initial contact. And he doesn't have initial contact either with the godless human powers in Israel. You know that Sanhedrin, which is in so many ways, just does not love God so much as they love themselves and their privileges. But those are not the real adversary. 
that Jesus is here to encounter. And I, I think he's here to encounter, you see immediately, the ancient foe of the whole human race, that old serpent that we met in the Garden of Eden. And I love this because it's a good reminder to me. You know, I, I, I've said to you before, I hear this as a very gentle nudge, but it, it's a nudge we need. You know, beloved, we really are preoccupied. And as Americans, I think we are uniquely preoccupied with flesh and blood. Oh, we are into the things that are going on with flesh and blood. It's so important to us. It's just apocalyptically important to us so much of the time. And we're gently reminded here that the true adversary, the real war, the deliverance we really need is not from flesh and blood. It is this enemy who must be met on the field of battle. And it's important to notice that it's the spirit Do you notice that? Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. And he is impelled. He is led by the Spirit. Now, when you see the Spirit, you remember, this is going all the way back to the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created, and the Spirit of God is moving. The Spirit is life-giving. It's the power that creates. And that Spirit is moving in Jesus and moving through Jesus and and driving him into the wilderness to encounter the, the devil. And it's interesting that it's in the wilderness. This is really crucial. This is, he's not going to meet the, the serpent, the devil, in some Eden context. He's not in the promised land. He's not in Israel. He's driven out into the wilderness. And you might remember what happened to Adam and Eve when they sinned against the, the Lord of the garden, the Lord of the temple. They are thrown out. They are, they are alienated, exiled. They, this, is, this is the place of curse. It's the place of separation from God. And the Spirit drives Jesus out there to this place of alienation and curse. There's another biblical allusion here, and that is this is the realm of a dark power called Azazel. If you read about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in Israel's history, you'll remember that two goats were sacrificed that day. One was slain in the normal way as a bloody sin offering. The other goat, the sins of Israel were placed, were confessed over this goat. They were placed upon this goat, and that goat was sent away from Israel out into the wilderness to Azazel. And Azazel remains somewhat of a, of a mystery unless you think about the casting out of Adam and Eve into this realm where kind of Satan holds, holds sway, so the serpent holds sway. And so Azazel is this... He, is the, he, he receives the goat because the, the wilderness is his realm. This is the realm with a dark lord of, of rebellion and, and ruin, just reigns over things. Jim Jordan says, Azazel is the lord of the trash heap outside the holy place. And the goat is sort of cast out into that outer darkness where Azazel is. And here's Jesus thrown out as a kind of scapegoat into... Azazel's realm, and this ancient tempter now is ready for him, but he's going to encounter a very different Adam from the last one. Notice the specifics of the temptation. So Azazel gets to work. Right away in verse 2, Jesus is hungry. 40 days, man, long time. First temptation. The devil seeks to get Jesus to satisfy his needs and wants apart from his father's will. That's the first thing. Satisfy your needs and wants apart from the father's will. Because there's nothing wrong with eating. I mean, the the man is starving after 40 days. There's nothing wrong with eating. There is something very wrong with eating 
if you have to disregard the word of the Lord. For the Son of God, nothing wrong with eating, but it's always the word first, my desire is second. That's the Son of God. Why is Jesus fasting in the wilderness? He's fasting in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is enabling him to fast. Why is he fasting out here in Azazel's realm? Because this is the devil's realm. If any table is going to be set here, it's going to be because Azazel sets it, and Azazel does. Azazel's like, hey, turn one of my stones in this accursed realm into bread and eat. Eat at my table in so many words. And you already know this should be flashing in your mind from various Old Testament stories. That's what brought Eve down. The tree was good for food. Abram, when he gets back from conquering the enemies of the king of Sodom, meets the king of Sodom, and the king of Sodom says, you take the people that you brought back, I'll give you all the spoils of the city. What does Abraham Abraham say? He says, I will not take a shoestring from you, lest you should say that you made Abram rich. God is my provider. Think about Daniel and his friends in Babylon. What's wrong with eating the king's meat and the king's, drinking the king's wine? There's nothing wrong with meat and wine. What's wrong is to somehow put yourself in a place where Nebuchadnezzar is your benefactor instead of Yahweh. And they would say, we won't do it. We will keep ourselves pure. Paul says to the Corinthians, now we're in the New Testament now, this is a Gentile city. He says, when you go into pagan temples and you eat their worship feasts, you are eating at the table of demons. And I don't want you to have fellowship and partake in communion with demons. This is a big deal. And Jesus says, I'm not going to eat your food, Azazel. Nothing wrong with eating. But I am here because my Father has sent me here. And the fact that I can obtain something, the fact that I can enjoy something, isn't the only issue for me because I'm the Son of God. The question is, am I obtaining this? Am I enjoying this in disregard of my Father's will? My meat and drink. I mean, he ate and drank. He was a human being. But my meat and drink ultimately is to do the will of my father. Man shall not live, he says, by bread alone. Bread is good. But you don't live by bread alone. You live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Well, that didn't go so well. So the devil tries again. Second temptation. And he tempts Jesus the second time now to obtain the kingdom that God promised to him apart from his father's will. Obtain the kingdom. And he just shows them the kingdoms of the world, all their glory, all the authority in a moment, says it's all yours. And this is really, again, a very subtle temptation because God made man for dominion. Adam was to rule the world. He was to, he was to be the Lord of the kingdoms of the earth. That is what Jesus is here. I mean, Jesus is here to claim the kingdoms of the world, to become the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so he's, I mean, it's just like the devil's just saying, let's just, let's go with it, man. Here it is. God made us for dominion. He made us, he didn't just make man for dominion. He made us for the honor, the glory, the wealth that comes with that kingdom. But beloved, there is a way and there is a time appointed by the Father. Those God to whom God gives rule go through a preparatory work. Adam would have ruled, but there was a preparatory time needed, including resisting the serpent. Israel was to be given a kingdom, but there's a whole wilderness thing. There's a time and a way appointed by the father. David is actually anointed king, and then what happens? He's got to run away from a psychopathic father-in-law for the next, like, 10 years of his life. That's a heavy trip to lay on a young man, but there's a preparatory work. There's a time and a way. God will give you the kingdom in his time, in his way, and what our hearts naturally say is, kingdom now, please. Kingdom now. We want power now. 
We want to rule now. We want all the justice now. We want all the status now. And the devil says, then let me show you the way. And it is a lie. What a presumptuous thing for the devil to say, all of this has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. What a presumptuous thing to say. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all who dwell in it. And you might remember a very, 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 very powerful king once got quite a lesson from the hand of Yahweh when God made him eat grass like an ox for a while until he understood that the kingdom is Yahweh's and he gives it to whom he will. And Jesus knows, I will receive the kingdom. I will receive it in my father's time and my father's way. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Well, that didn't go well either. And so Satan goes on to a third. And this is the most subtle by far. Now... He tempts Jesus to rely on God's promises apart from God's purposes. Now, this is really tricky. Rely on God's promises apart from God's purposes. Now we change venue. So let's, let's go back into the Holy Land. I think this is probably a vision, not a physical transport. But we're back in the Holy Land. We are back in the Holy City. We're back in the place of God's covenant, not out in the wilderness anymore. We are in this place where the angels of God care for God's people as opposed to out there in the surging oceans of the world's peoples where demonic powers rule over the nations. Now we're back kind of home. And Jesus is taken up to the very pinnacle of the temple and Satan drops this very, very tricky temptation. He says, if you're the son of God, do this. Prove how powerful your God is. Prove how faithful he is to his promises. Didn't he say that the one who dwells in his shelter, and here's the temple, the one who dwells in his shelter can be fearless, can throw himself on the angels because he will never strike his foot against a stone. So prove, Jesus, how strong and faithful your God is. He keeps his promises. Show it. Now what could possibly be wrong with that? My word, the imagery is so thick here, it's just unbelievable. Because Jesus does have a mission in this city, in this very temple. And it is the will of his Father that he is going to dash his foot hard. Not on a stone, but on the head of this serpent, tempting him. Even though myriads of angels stand ready to deliver him, it is the will of the Father that he dash his foot on this serpent and be wounded unto death. That's the mission. And that's why this is a temptation, even though we, Satan is quoting scripture. The very he's quoting from Psalm 91, and the very next, interestingly, unquoted verse in, uh, in Psalm 91, he shall, they shall bear you up in their hands, lest you dash your foot against the stone. Guess what the very next verse is in Psalm 91? You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent, you will trample underfoot. And then God gives this promise to this one who is faithful, who is obedient, who stays on mission from the Father. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will be his savior, not the angels, because he has obeyed my voice, says the Father. And for Jesus to claim the promises of God in disregard of God's purposes... For you and for me ever to expect God's blessings, demand God's blessings without allegiance to him, 
It is presumption. It is testing the Lord. Aren't you going to do what you promised? Testing the Lord. Jesus' response here is just so profound because he quotes from Deuteronomy 6. Right after that famous text, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God, heart, mind, soul, and strength, and so on. Right after that, God says to Israel, when I give you this land and it's overflowing with good things, none of which you earned, don't forget the Lord. Don't test God the way you did at Massa when there was no water and you grumbled and said, is God among us or not? And Jesus weaves those strands together in his simple response. He says to Satan, you shall not test God's goodness by forgetting him when you're blessed. Do you realize, beloved, when God blesses you and if you forget him, you are testing the Lord. Gimme, 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 gimme. But I'm going to forget you. You are testing God's goodness. Don't test God by questioning his goodness when you're in a bad spot, like at Massa. There's no water. What comes out of our hearts? So where's all that goodness now, God? What are we doing? We are testing the Lord's goodness. You going to come through? Are you among us or not? And don't test God by presuming he will bless if we've turned from his will to our own agenda. Jesus has an agenda. It is set by the Father. He will not deviate from it and test the Lord. And as in Eden, the way of the serpent will bring ease leading to death. The way of obedience will bring death leading to resurrection. I want to conclude with just dropping a couple of seed questions here about spiritual warfare. It won't take very much time at all with this. I know I've already run long. We'll circle back to these seed questions. I just want to drop them, kind of plant them now, just thinking about these two questions in light of what we've just been reading about Jesus. First question, as you look at this text, is our basic problem as human beings guilt before God or bondage to the devil? Because sometimes the Bible talks about our problem as guilt before God. Sometimes it talks about our problem as bondage to the devil. And I think this text helps us understand that both of them are a problem. I love that old hymn, Be of Sin, Blood of blood of Christ, be of sin the double cure, save me from, you remember the language, save me from, it's what? It's guilt and power, they're both real, but it is, you, the reason why this text matters so much, in light of what will come later, is that it is guilt that gives Satan his power. The power of Satan, the power that we are in bondage to, flows from the guilt problem. Jesus, and that's why this matters so much that he get this right, <laughs> not just for his own obedience, but to save us. He is going to free his people from the power of the serpent by bringing them into a place where they can be what the Bible calls justified. They can be right before God. He, he is going to crush the serpent by absolutely perfect obedience all the way to death. Perfect obedience to the Father, offering his life as a perfect sacrifice in the end, bearing our curse, That is how he's going to crush the serpent, through perfect obedience. But then we are going to tread on the serpent through his obedience because he has taken the curse. He has fulfilled the law. And Paul says that is how he disarmed Satan. He just stripped the evil one of his, any points of accusation against you and me. There's nothing in God's curse that can land for you and me now. There's no point of obedience that Jesus has not fulfilled for us. And so we, uh, we, are, we stand before God guiltless, justified, righteous. And that's why Satan has been disarmed with respect to us. He cannot destroy us anymore because our guilt has been taken away. And that's exactly what you see even in the Exodus, right? 
What ultimately broke the power of Pharaoh? It was the blood of the Passover lamb. The removal of guilt is the removal of the power. But a second final question just to think about, and we'll circle back to this one too, in light of this text. How does Satan's temptation work in our modern disenchanted world? Because we don't believe in demons anymore, right? We don't believe in all this supernatural spiritual stuff. We, our world has been disenchanted. You know, we're, we, we live in a scientific age. You know, okay, what, do we, what do we do with a text like this in a modern world? I mean, does anyone really take this kind of, you know, the devil and all this stuff going on? Is this, is this serious? It's interesting, you know, in our time, for all of our so-called enlightenment and advancement, and we're beyond all of that, our world is actually not so very disenchanted, as you know. People still, to this day, and I think you see a hunger for this more and more, they still open themselves up to the spirit world through, through rituals of the occult. I'm hearing about this more and more. Rituals of other so-called spiritualities. There are still people in this world who pay homage to imagined deities behind which the Apostle Paul says stand real, though invisible, demonic forces. All that's still going on. But what I'd like to think about for those of us who live in the modern disenchanted world is the devil is very, very happy to remain invisible as long as he can pull us away from God, his word, and the life that he made us for. He's happy never to be seen, never to be heard, never to come out from behind the curtain. What does the devil want? In 2022 North America, as much as in first century Palestine, what Jesus, what the devil wants is for our wants and our needs to be running free from faith. He wants you living for your wants and your needs apart from faith in God. He doesn't want your wants to be wanting in faith. He doesn't want your needs to be needs in faith. He wants you pursuing your wants and needs apart from faith. That's what the temptation with the stone is about. And he's happy if he can get that even if you never even think about him or spirituality. Or the kingdom temptation. Satan's very happy if you and I are running after power, running after dominion, seeking justice, seeking status, as long as it's running free of obedience. He'll even give you power, dominion, success, as long as it doesn't involve surrendering all that in obedience to the Father. And you know what he really loves? The temple temptation, he really, really loves religion that is all about God fulfilling my purposes rather than my conforming to his. Loves it. And increasingly, it's interesting, I listen a lot to just kind of Christian commentators and thinkers in our time, and increasingly in our very mechanical, technological age, I do hear the word demonic showing up for the first time in a long while, that there is something demonic about the late modern world that this centuries-long quest for total control of nature by human beings has somehow turned back on ourselves, and we have become slaves of our own powers. There's a weird feeling about this, a sense that many of us now, especially our children, they are drowning in distractions and stimulus, and we do not have the wisdom, we do not have the strength, we do not even have the desire to extricate ourselves from that torrent that is just bearing down on us and it feels demonic, something machine-like, something controlling. I don't think that's completely wrong. And we'll circle back to it. But, of course, but God. 
Because what this text sets before us is Christus victor. Christ is victor. He's over, victor over enemies without. He is also victor over all the enemies within. And so we're going to keep following him through Luke's gospel and keep learning together how do we live this victorious life that he has opened to us through his obedience. Father, guide us and change us and empower us in Christ, your victorious Son, in whom we pray. Amen.